Well, it's a joy of mine to be able to be back in the pulpit this Sunday. And I would encourage you to go ahead and grab one of those Bibles around you or your own. Or maybe you're using one of those scripture journals, those Genesis scripture journals that uh, we have given out. And those are our gift to you. If you do not have one of those, we still have um, a few in the back of the room. But we are going to be picking it up in Genesis chapter 5 this morning. Genesis chapter 5, that will be on page 4 in those black ESV pew Bibles around the room. Now, many of you know this, but as a church, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, right? That very first book of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse. And I pray that it has been encouraging for you, right? It's been edifying for you. It's been Christ magnifying for you as much as it has been for me. I've really been enjoying this study so far. Because what we have seen in these opening chapters, church, is not only how the Bible begins, but really how our story begins as humanity, right? How do, how do we fit into this picture? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to try to worship a God? What kind of God is it? Well, Genesis is sending out to answer all those questions, And so we have seen so far that God has created everything, right? He created, he's the most powerful being ever and ever will be. He created everything out of nothing. Everything that we enjoy on this earth, right? Including the mountains, the vegetation, the animals. But also even created us for relationship with one another. We saw that design of marriage in the very beginning. But we also see, because we were made in the image and likeness of God the only creation to be created in that way, that we were created for a special relationship with God. That we're not just creation, but we're creation that was meant for relationship with the Creator. And so we've been given a special task, right? To rule and subdue the earth. To be able to be a a conduit of of grace and a conduit of of glory reflecting who the Creator is. But we saw in chapter 3 that that was fractured. So that mirror in which we once fully and perfectly showed the image of God, that mirror has been fractured. We still bear the image of God, but not so perfectly anymore. Because when our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned and they rebelled against God, That sin that was introduced to the world has fractured everything. And we, as we've been talking about this morning, see that to this day. But yet, amongst uh, the pain of Genesis 3, we saw something very beautiful. We saw promise. We saw God speaking to our great enemy, Satan, but also speaking to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and said, I am going to send someone to undo this curse. I am going to send someone to do what Adam failed to do in the garden. I am going to send what we see later on in Scripture, a second Adam. Named Jesus Christ. But through Genesis, we've been seeing basically from Genesis 3.15 is God basically showcasing how he is going to fulfill that promise. That promise to send a Savior through the seed, through the line of Adam and Eve to undo this curse. And last week in Genesis 4, Justin led us in looking about how did God's promise continue after Adam and Eve. 
So we, we saw that, but we also saw how sin continued to manifest itself outside the garden. Right? We saw the first murder. We saw the first polygamist. But we also saw the faithfulness of God to sinners like Abel. Who didn't earn a faith in God, but embraced a faith in God through the promises of God. It's now the author of Genesis, Moses, here in Genesis chapter 5, will continue to, to expound upon God's faithfulness to bring that Savior. What that, where that Savior will come from. Even amidst a people that are really cruising down the fast lane of sin. And we see the consequences of that all over the place. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there for a moment like we normally do here at Carson Valley. As we, we know that we need God's help to understand his word. You know that I need God's help to be able to preach God's word. So if you could, let me pray for you and you pray for me. And then we'll jump into the text. Well, Father, once again, I just want to come before you. Thankful that you are a God who has revealed yourself. That you have given us this word through your scriptures so that we, we're not flying blind in knowing who you are. That we actually can know who you are. And we can know who you are through your word. So as we listen, as we read this morning, God, I pray that through your spirit that you would just illuminate the text for us. Allow us to see exactly what you intended us to see in it. God, we also want to pray for our kiddos next door and for the teachers in there. God, as they're looking at the same promises that we're looking at here, God, I pray that will you just allow those little hearts, those little minds, just to be awakened to the goodness of you and the goodness of your gospel. Because what a joy would that be for all of us to be able to walk out of here just loving you far more than when we first walked in. And that only comes from you. So, Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Genesis 5, and we're actually going to be reading through Genesis 6-8 this morning. A little bit of a longer passage, but I do want to just read the entire length of that for us this morning. So Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It reads, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after the fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. 
When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 6, starting verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. All right. Now, I know probably for many in this room, that is, we just did something very unique. You just read one of the genealogies in your Bible. Because usually when you come to these, you skip it. Or you skim it. It's okay. God knows. This is a safe place. But there is importance to genealogies in Scripture. Because genealogies, even though they may seem on surface level to us like, right, just a bunch of information that, you know, why why does this matter for us today? Well, it, it matters greatly because it showcases that Christianity is not just a mere philosophy in which you adhere to, right? It's not just a set of moral codes in which you embark to to uphold, but rather Christianity is historical, Right? It's God working through real people in real time to bring a real Savior to the world. And so for the original audience, right, what God is doing, and is doing for us today, is he's showcasing how God kept his promise of bringing a seed from Adam to Noah. Right? He's taking a specific group of people, and he's tracing the family line to Noah, which will be really the the zoomed-in focus on the next several chapters. 
but it's showcasing that this is historical, that these were real people, not mythical, not just some kind of fable, but real people. I think it also shows us, too, and this is important for us today, is that God cares about each and every generation. That you may not go down in history books for maybe a particular skill set or job or family that you raised. But what we see here in Genesis 5 is God can always use your faithfulness in childbearing or your faithfulness in investing in people in generations in ways that you probably can never imagine right now. That maybe God is not going to, your name's not going to be in the history books, but maybe one of your sons or daughters is, or your great-grandkids. We have no idea what God is going to use it's going to how he's going to use our family line for his own purposes. And so all of these genealogies, what they do is they just highlight that God will always use each and every one of us according to his perfect will. And we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in that. But if you look back at Genesis chapter 5, I want to highlight a few things for us in this text. Because here we have what is known as another Toledo. Right? Another section of scripture that we'll see throughout the book of Genesis of highlighting these individuals. So not only do we get this line from Adam to Noah, but we also get a little bit of uh, particularity of how God is working in the world. What is he up to? What is he capable of? And so I want to show you that. Because in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, if you remember... It ended with kind of tracing some of the line of Cain, right? The Canaanite line. This line would really be then referred to as this, this line of evil. This line of even Satan, if you will. But then here in Genesis chapter 5, we see that promise of this, this line of God. This line of, of individuals who God is using for his purposes, to carry out his plan. But I want to highlight, too, that this, this faithful line that we see in Genesis 5, they are not morally superior or somehow have earned anything from God. We don't see that at all. But yet what we do see is, unknown reason to us, God has chosen these individuals to bring about his Savior for his own purposes. But before we look at some of the individuals that we see in this line, I have to deal with a, what I've been referring to as a, a theological elephant in the room. And that's the ages of these people, right? You're all thinking it. You're probably talking to your neighbor about it. It's a fair question, right? It's a fair question. Their ages are far greater than our ages, right? You know, even Harry mentioned, you know, of, of 71, feeling the effects of old age. That would have been a very young buck, Right, in this day. We see in verse 25, a man named Methuselah, he lived a total of 969 years. Now for, to store in your Bible trivia case, that's the oldest age recorded in the Bible. 969 years. Now, some have speculated that these ages, we really can't take for face value. Right, that the way that they, they you know, 
calculated age and counted age in that day is different than what we count age today. Now, there's really not any textual evidence for that in, in Hebrew literature or in the Bible as um, either. So I don't, I don't really think that there's much evidence for that. Now, some have also said that this was before the flood. And so maybe the atmosphere or maybe the context of the earth was different because of all the water that was being stored up for the flood. So people aged differently before the flood. And that could certainly be the case. Even though we do see some really older ages after the flood, there is a pretty clear uh, difference in ages before flood and after the flood. So that might be the case. But in all biblical truth, we simply don't know. We simply do not know exactly why people lived longer in those days than they do today. Now, if you are interested, there are some really fun books that, that speculate on, on the effects of sin on the human body and how even sin, the longer that sin has been around, the more it has been affected our, our genes and our DNA. And so as that's been passed along from person to person, um, ages have shrunk as well. And those are, those are fun to think about, no doubt. Even if you jump over to Genesis 6-3, you'll see Moses make a reference to how in the future that there will be this cap of 120 years. Now, that might be referring to age. Moses actually was only 120 years old, I believe. But I honestly think that's more in reference to the in 120 years when the flood's going to happen, not really talking about the age of people. But here is what I do think that Moses was trying to get at as he's lifting out this genealogy and mentioning their names. I do think his repetition was intended for a specific purpose. Whenever you see repetition in the Bible church, it's always a, it's a literary style to get you to understand something. But I don't think the, the mentioning of the years when you know, they had kids and how old they were um, when, they, when they finally died... I think the repetition was to showcase the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin outside of the garden. Because what is the wage of sin, church? It's death. Yeah, it's death. And so you see this repetition over and over again. This person lived and he died. This person lived and he died. But notice, there are two places in the genealogy of chapter 5 where that, there's a break in that repetition. And that break in the repetition was then to, to cause us to go, wait, 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 what did you just say? What, what, what happened there? And so let me show you this. The first one we see is in verse 21. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. But then when did Enoch die? How old was he? It doesn't say. And the reason it doesn't say is because he didn't die. Rather, it says if you jump down to verse 24, it says Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. So he didn't experience death. God just took him. Right? No physical death. So why is that in there? Well, here is why I think it's in there. Amidst a world pervaded by sin and death, right, where we see death was coming for each and every one of us, even those who are in this godly line of Seth, 
death could still be conquered. That death could still be defeated. And who could it be defeated by? God. God. So what is important for us to understand in this text is that God was showcasing that there's a way that death doesn't win. There's a way that sin does not get the last word. And that was through a relationship with God. It says that Enoch walked with God, right? He had relationship with God. Even that language of walking with God, that should be reminiscent of the garden, right? When they, where they walked with God, walked in his presence. It was about relationship. I don't think that's too hard for us to understand. I know many in this room, you like to go on walks together. And why do you do that? Yeah, there's, there's aspects of physical exercise and, you know, getting outside. But the reason you do walking compared to other things is because of the intimacy it allows in conversation between those who you're walking with. Right? It, when you go on a walk with somebody, it's understood that there's going to be conversation. Right? There's relationship building amidst those times. I think that's what we see here. It says, as Enoch walked with God. Now, was it because Enoch was morally upright, morally superior than anybody else? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he earned anything special from God. In fact, and you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews 11, that same passage that Justin showed us last week, this Hebrews 11 is known as this Hall of Faith, is that we see that the reason that Enoch was taken up by God was because Enoch had faith in God. He had relationship with God. He had believed and trusted in the promises of God. And that friendship, that relationship, allowed for death no longer to have the last word. Friends, do you see the foreshadow of that to Christ? Because where do we see God inviting people to walk with him again? With Jesus, right? When he was calling his disciples, he was saying, come and follow me, right? It was a call to walk with him, both physically, but also spiritually. To walk with him, to engage in relationship with him. And so it is for us today, that every single one of us are called to walk with God. To be followers of him, to have relationship with him. And so let me ask you, is walking with God a way that you would describe your relationship? That you are, are following him, that you are engaging in relationship with him as a good, good God? Or are you simply trying to blaze your own trail in this world and say, God, I hope you bless it in the end. But what we see over and over again throughout the Bible is this call for intimacy, this call for relationship with God, church. And ultimately, this relationship with God, we will see the fruit of that. And that is the defeat of sin and death. And ultimately, that is seen at the cross, right? Where Jesus triumphantly announced that he has defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross. And when he rose again, right, on that Easter Sunday, that was proof of everything he said and did was true and right. That's why you read genealogies, church. Because you can miss little things that... God does not waste words. We can waste words. We can put filler words in. He does not. 
Now, the second break in the pattern that we have in Genesis 5 is over in verse 28. So direct your attention over there. Where we are introduced to a man named Lamech. Now, for those of you who are maybe, you know, studious, have a good memory, you know that we heard about a Lamech last week. Lamech was the first polygamist. This is not the same Lamech. It's a different Lamech. It's confusing. I wish they had chose a different name. Why so close together? I mean, there had to be enough names out there, right? But what we see here in Genesis 5.28 is Lamech fathered a man named Noah. And then we're given some insight into what his hopes for this son was, for his son. And we see that in verse 29, where Lamech talks about the fulfillment, the promise of God, the effects of sin, and says, I want my son to be part that brings rest for God's people. Where the soil and the toil that came from sin entering this world will be remedied through the promise of God's seed. Even Noah's name means rest in Hebrew. It was indication that Lamech, he wanted his son to have a special role. And God answered that prayer. And we'll, we'll see that later on in the coming chapters. But what I'd like to do is enter into chapter 6 and highlight a few things as God is continuing just to showcase his faithfulness in bringing about this seed But chapter 6 gets into some very interesting territory. In fact, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, is probably the most debated section in all of the Pentateuch, in case you're interested. Not of anything that's like first-order doctrine, like what makes you a Christian or not a Christian, how you interpret this. Um, these are all just kind of nuanced things of, what was Moses getting out there? I don't really quite understand. Or why did he use that language that he did? But I think they are important because, like I said, God does not waste any word. So we're going to just kind of walk through a couple of these things a little bit slower. So starting in chapter 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So the debated chapter, or the debated section here in chapter 6 one of them, because there's, there's a couple, and I'll show you that, is who are these sons of God? Like, who are these men? We see the earth populating, right? We see men and women, and then they're, they're getting together, right? They're having sexual relations. Why is this being highlighted? Now, when it comes to these sons of God, because then later on in, in verse 4, you'll see that the sons of God then ended up having children, right, with these daughters of man, and it says that they were mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. So there's been a lot of speculation. Who are these sons of God? Well, let me give you the three most historical interpretations of this text. The first interpretation of this text is that the sons of God referred to ancient kings and ancient warriors from other countries. Right? They were, they were mighty men renowned for their size and their stature and their abilities and are often considered by the outside secular world, right, outside of God's people, these were considered almost divine-like men. That's why they're referred to as sons of God. And as these individuals that were coming in, 
in having children with the daughters of man. Now, that might be, but there really isn't any evidence for that in the text. There's not much evidence for that in the text. The second theory is that some would say that the sons of God are actually fallen angels who then had sexual relationship with human females and it produced this powerful human beings that are then known as the Nephilim. Now, this is the view that I was taught for much of my Christian life. And this is a, a view that many of you probably have been taught and probably hold. It's a very popular understanding of this text um, held and taught by uh, very smart biblical teachers and scholars. And the reason that they teach that is because when that phrase sons of God is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it's not used much, but we see a couple of times it referred to in the book of Job. Every time the phrase sons of God is used in the book of Job, it is referring to angels. It's referring to angels. So that might be the case. That certainly might be the case. However, I would say, and let me propose to you, uh, a third option. And this is one that I, I think after studying the context, after preaching through right, these early chapters of Genesis, I don't know if the fallen angels is quite the right interpretation of this text. My interpretation of this is, is in the context that Moses has been talking about these genealogies, right? This lineage of men, of humanity. And he's been talking about this line these two different lines, right? This, this line of Cain and this line of Seth. And often the line of Seth is then referred to as this godly line. Furthermore, in the New Testament, you do see the sons of God language, and it's always referred to just God's chosen people. It's referring to the people, humans, not angels, in that context. Furthermore, and what we'll see in, in the coming verses is immediately following this, we see God's judgment on earth with the flood against whom? People. The judgment is against people, not fallen angels, primarily. We see that highlighted. So I believe what we're seeing here is just Moses used the language of talking about these sons of God are just the line of, line of Seth. And that they were then marrying and having children with the line of Cain, known as this, this other line, but not this godly line. Now, it's not a hill that I, I'm willing to die on at all. Like I said, it's not one that makes you a Christian or not a Christian. Um, but I do think that in context, what Moses is doing is trying to highlight this lineage of people. And I find that it would be a little bit off base to be talking about people, 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 angels, people, 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 okay? Now, I'm running out of time already, but I know what you're wondering. Who are the Nephilim? We got to talk about that, right? Can't just talk about Nephilim. Well, here is where maybe I'll, I'll solve all of your thoughts on this, and it comes from knowing the definition of the Hebrew word Nephilim. What does that mean in English? Know what it means? How do we translate Nephilim in English? Nephilim. We don't have a word. It's just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. We just took it. Like, I don't know what those are. Well, it's called Nephilim. That's what Hebrews called them. We'll just call them Nephilim too. Now, 
the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, does translate Nephilim as gigantos, giants. And we, and we can see from other texts in the Old Testament that people who referred to as Nephilim were probably really tall people, really strong people. Now, is, are these some kind of hybrid people between fallen angels and humanity? I don't think so. Uh, but, once again, we can still be brothers and sisters in faith in this church, if you hold to that. Now, I could probably talk about Nephilim, but it would not be helpful, I think. Uh, and, and primarily because we don't see Moses really talk about it a whole lot. I think it, it, when Moses mentioned this to the original audience, like, and the Nephilim were in those days. And they probably go, okay, Nephilim, got it. Like, they didn't ask questions. They knew who this, these people were. We just don't. But Moses didn't feel like it was necessary to define these people for us to understand the, the central message of this text. So I'm not going to try to do that as well. Okay, so let's, let's go ahead and move on. Because there's more theological elephants I need to deal with. And this is the last one, though. In verses 5 and 6, this is important. So after all of this tracing of the line and the promise of God to bring about the seed, there's this pulling back, right? This, this view up to a 30,000-foot view where God is looking down on the earth and looking down on all the people and just seeing how sin has pervaded every aspect of who they are. And it says in verse 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A very sobering picture of what sin does. It affects all of us and every ounce of us. That everything that we do is tainted by it. But then in verse 6, and this is where I want to spend a little bit of time, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And then talks about how he is going to blot out man because of this. He's going to block out man. Now, verse 6 is where a lot of people get hung up on. Is what in the world does it mean that God regretted or that he was sorry or your translation might even have, he repented that he had made man. And that it grieved God, it grieved him. What does that mean? Well, we have to make sure that when we read the Bible, we not only we have read it knowing that there's other literary styles that human authors can use to communicate a point. Because the Bible often does use different literary tools to communicate things in a way that we would understand. And this is one of those places where here we have Moses, right, here's your big word for today, is using anthropopathic language to describe the emotions of God. So anthropopathism is when humans write and ascribe human emotions to God. Okay? You might be more familiar with another literary style, very similar, called anthropomorphism, right, where a writer uses human physical characteristics and to describe God, such as God's heart or God's hand, right? God does not have a literal human heart or a literal human hand, but he's using language for us to be able to understand a little bit better about who God is. 
So when we read something in verse 6, we have to realize that we are reading anthropopathic language, right? Human emotion words to describe the emotional life of God. And by the way, those are different, right? The way that God experiences emotions is not the same way that humans experience emotion. Not at all. And so when we read something like God was sorry, it's not sorry in a way that we experience sorriness. Like, we made a mistake. We say, I'm sorry. Or when somebody tells us about something bad going on in their life and we go, I'm sorry. In a way that we're trying just to say, I wish there was something I could do about that, but I can't. Right? God does not have the same emotional life that we do. He's not governed by emotions. He's not held hostage by his emotions. He's in complete control of his emotions. Now, if you want a, kind of a theological category for this, theologians refer to this as the impassibility of God. Impassibility means that God is not governed or restrained by passions. Now, passions in the way that impassibility is used, is, not, is more negative. We talk about passions like in a good way. What theologians are referring to is God is not governed by passions. He is in absolute control of his emotions all the time. His emotions don't result in things that he did not intend or want. So what we are reading here is God just showcasing that he grieved over sin. That all he knew that it was coming. He was not surprised by it. There's nothing here in verse 5 that says that God was dumbfounded that sin had made its way in the way that it had did. But it's showcasing that God still cares. Despite him knowing about it. He knew about it before the foundation of the world. He still cared about sin. He still cared that things were broken. He still cared that things were not right in this world. And so Moses is trying to offer this understanding for his audience then and us today, for us to go, God, I know that you care about sin. You say it here, and, you, and it disgusts you. It breaks your heart. When you see sin, you know that justice must come. That's what the Bible is getting at. Does that make sense? But even amidst a world that is so pervaded by sin, so caught up in it, look at verse 8. There's grace, church. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So despite all the wickedness, despite all the due penalty for sin, God still looks at individuals and goes, I'm going to show grace. I'm going to give them something they don't deserve. And we see that in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Even the very next verse, you'll see that Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God. But let me point out that Noah did not earn this favor with God. But favor found him. See, God has always been one of grace, right? God did not become a graceful God in the New Testament. He was graceful from the beginning, and he'd be graceful to the end. And thanks be to God for that. Even if you were to, and I know many of you guys probably know this, in just your, your, your time in the Old Testament, maybe growing up or in, in past churches, that 
when it says that Noah found favor with God, the only other people in the Old Testament that have found favor with God are Abraham and Moses. It highlights that language of found favor with God. But if you know anything about Abraham and Moses, like Noah, they were not perfect human beings at all. They did some shady stuff. Right? They were deeply sinful people. So this found favor is not based off of some kind of future righteousness that they would display, this future law-obeying that they would display. It was just God looking down at certain individuals for his own reason, right, for his own purposes, and saying, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. And that's what's with all of us, right? That's, why, that's how salvation has come to every single one of us. Not because we presented our case to God and said, God, this is why you should choose me. You should call me one of your sons or daughters. Just all of a sudden, we realize that what Jesus did on the cross, it counted for you. You needed it. And so you believed and you trusted in the work that has already been done before you ever would do anything for God. Now, I'll get to Noah We'll look at the whole flood narrative um, next Sunday, Lord willing. But I want to end today by simply just reminding us that God has always been on the move. In Genesis 5 and in these first few verses in Genesis 6, we see the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 continue and continue and continue through different men, through different sinful men and women But the end goal, like Enoch, like Noah, is for us to walk with God. And by God's grace, maybe today, for the first time, you are realizing how much you are a sinner. But you're also realizing how great a Savior God is. How great a Savior Jesus Christ is in what he has done. Then walk with him. Follow him. Trust him. And if you are a Christian today... Continue to walk with God. Ultimate flourishing comes from following Him and trusting Him. He's not saying to do something perfectly. We all know that. The walk with God is not a saying, I'm just going to get my act together. I'll never do anything again, Lord, that displeases you. We all know that we still will. But even despite whenever sin comes up, whenever we still see that our bent is towards sin at times, we repent of that and we continue to walk with God. We continue to follow Him. And we follow Him all the way to the end. Right? When we see those words in the New Testament, we hear those words in the New Testament, it's well done, good and faithful servant. The Christian life is just, that's why it talks about it, it's a race. It's a walking with God. It's a following Him. And we'll see in these coming chapters with, with Noah and the flood that even when things get really bad, God is still calling people to say, come to me. Find refuge in me. Embrace me against all of the waters of wrath that are coming. I'm the only one that can save you from it. All right, church, let's go ahead and end there. Let's pray. Well, Father, I want to just thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your promises. Thank you just for moving 
in such unique and powerful ways in these early days that we can just look back on and go, this is your character. This is what you do. This is how you interact with sinners like me, Lord. And God, as we just end our time in the word this morning, as I pray that you would move mightily, that each and every one of us would see that walking with God is such a joy, such a unique invitation away from the consequences of sin and death that we so justly and rightly deserve. But you invite us into something better. And may we be faithful to respond to that. And God, thank you for giving us the heart that desires to. And we pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.